It is uh, February 14th, 2016. It is Valentine's Day. And because of that, pulpits across America will be preaching little powder puff messages full of lollipops and dandelions (laughs) about how we should hold hands and skip along the beach with Jesus or something. This is not your average church. We're going to take on a couple topics today about the nature of God and the nature of salvation. And we're going to leave all of the sugar substitute preaching to some church that is sweet and low. But that is not us. Our topic today is tightrope and parking lot. These are meant to be set as juxtaposed to each other. We're going to begin our journey in the law of God. Let us start in Leviticus 19. Leviticus 9, we're going to pick up in the 15th verse. Most of the scriptures are going to be on the screen this morning. That's unusual for us, but it's because of the number of them that I intend to cover. Y'all doing all right this morning? I love it when we have our missionaries back. Are you dying to hear about Brent and Teresa's trip to Indonesia? Me too. It is... uh, It is good to be among not just the saints of God, but the vibrant saints of God. Those that aren't on life support, they're actually running a race. It's inspiring to be around men and women like you. I want you to know that it's the highlight of my life to get to be a part of this congregation. I love you wholeheartedly. And uh, it's my sincerest hope that that feeling is mutual. We'll find out as I get further into the message. Leviticus 9, starting in verse 15, tightrope. Aaron then brought the offering that was for the people. He took the goat for the people's sin offering and slaughtered it and offered it for a sin offering as he did with the first one. He brought the burnt offering and offered it in the, somebody say, prescribed way. He also brought the grain offering, took a handful of it and burned it on the altar in addition to the morning's burnt offering. Many times in this ministry's history, I have emphasized to you that there's a prescribed way. And anything other than the prescribed way is sin. It's error. There is one way to approach God. When you're thinking about that, in a person that has not reached a level of spiritual maturity, what this could mean to you is that you're always second-guessing yourself. That you are never confident in what the Lord is doing. You're like the man standing on this tightrope, basically waiting to fall at any minute. That was never my intention. Let me go to the next slide. I'm going to show you three or four of these. The tightrope, Leviticus 10, verses 1 through 3. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense, and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke of when he said, among those who approach me, I will show myself holy. In the sight of all of the people, I will be honored. This is another tightrope scripture. There is authorized fire and there is unauthorized fire. 
Again, in an immature Christian, this could produce the idea of constant insecurity. I'm concerned about whether or not my fire came from the Lord. And I don't mind telling you, you should be concerned. The question is whether or not you're standing on a tightrope. Let us go to the next one. 1 Chronicles 15, verse 13. By the way, if you're new here, you'll understand that we will probably go through 60 or 70 scriptures. There will never be three points in a poem. Our job here is to bring the Word of God to the forefront for you to consider its application to your life. Sometimes we will raise questions without answering them because, number one, we don't have all of the answers, and number two, if I did, I wouldn't feel the need to give them to you. I think there is great value in seeking the heart and face of God, being challenged to go find the secret things of God because once He's revealed something to you, no man will ever be able to take it away from you. But if you simply learn to parrot doctrine back to me, then that's all we'll have is doctrine and a parrot. First Chronicles 15 in verse 13. It was because you, the Levites, did not bring it up the first time that the Lord God broke out in anger against us. We did not inquire of him about how to do it in the prescribed way. So the priest and the Levites consecrated themselves in order to bring the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of God with it, with the poles on their shoulders, as Moses had commanded in accordance with the word of the Lord. In this passage, Uzzah has been struck dead because he touched the ark of God. It was called an irreverent act. And David explains in Chronicles that it was because they did not seek God and do it in the prescribed way. Again, a scripture I've preached on many times could be considered a tightrope. Let us hop into the New Testament and see how the tightrope might be epitomized in the New Testament. In Ephesians 5, 15 through 16... Be very careful. Somebody say, very careful. Oh, say it again. Very careful. Do you ever pray that ridiculous prayer with your kids? Now I lay me down to sleep. If I should die before I wake. You know? It sounds like Dracula or something. You'd have to read this with that kind of tone. Be very careful. Like God's going to get you. Like any minute you could fall off the rope, man. I want to admit too freely, I often preach like that. And I do not live that way. Have you ever spent any significant time around any of the Stevens? We are as serious and as intent about the Scripture as they come. But fearful is not a part of our vocabulary. The reason that I'm bringing this up is there is a prescribed way. And it is possible to so characterize that message that it becomes a tightrope to you. Be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. There is another message out there that some people could refer to as a parking lot. Now think about a tightrope. Constant movement, mostly motivated by fear, always waiting to fall. Now let us think about a parking lot. I found a spot, I landed on it, It's a gift from God, and I'm never moving and can't be moved from it. Bring your tow truck. I put my emergency brake on. This time I'm going to work from New Testament back to Older Testament. In John 5, verse 24, I tell you the truth. 
Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over. Say, has crossed over. Has crossed over from death to life. There's my parking lot, baby. I crossed over. I'm there. I'm in the spot. I can't be moved. Nobody can take me out of the parking lot. Some people approach the scripture this way. I would say that there's errors inherent to both. Always being fearful, waiting to fall. Constant self-correction. While could be a good thing, could also be a terrible work of self-righteousness and self-reliance. The parking lot spirit is another problem all in and of itself, though, isn't it? It's all been done. It's all here. You view the kingdom like that parking lot. How about John 10, 28 through 30? I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my parking lot. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's parking lot. How many of you have heard these analogies? Man, let me ask you though, is there something to be gleaned from the fact that you are securely in the Father's hand? That you've already crossed over from death to life? Is there something to be gleaned from the idea that you are not simply on a spider web dangling over hell waiting to fall off at any moment? Of course there is. I'll give you another parking lot passage. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, somebody say great. Great mercy has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never, say never, never, never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. See, pastor, I'm in the parking lot. I'm kept in the parking lot. Nothing could take me out of the parking lot. Maybe this is best exemplified in its origins. Passages like Exodus 15 and verse 13. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. Now, some of you are trained in the scriptures enough that as I slightly mischaracterize each one of these verses. You hear the exceptions. You want to say, yeah, but the scripture also says. What an interesting thing. When you cannot ignore any one scripture to the inclusion of another. When they're not to be rejected, but they're to be considered equally. And you're supposed to live in the tension between those two things. Now, forgive me, I'm quoting from Ecclesiastes this morning. That's not something that I normally do. I love all of the Bible. I mean, I love it. Preaching from Ecclesiastes is something that I venture into a couple times a year. And that's because Solomon is sometimes quite insane. It's like quoting from Job. You love to quote from Job and then you find out God corrects the man that you, th- that you just quoted as accurately. I do think there's something to be gleaned here. Perhaps this is why the Lord put it in our Bibles. I included a footnote on your screen. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? 
Do not be over wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. The man who fears God will avoid all extremes, or your footnote says, will follow them both. Interestingly enough, any of you with a Catholic background in this room, you may have heard this as everything in moderation. I have found that the people that espouse that don't love the Lord with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their strength. I'm not preaching to find a balance here this morning. It's not my goal to take two extreme points of view and split the difference and see what the median truth is. For me, all of the scripture is true. All of the scripture must be considered no matter how extreme or juxtaposed one scripture seems to another. Neither the tendency towards what you could call a tightrope scripture or what you may refer to as a parking lot scripture is to be disregarded and neither is to be accepted without the other. They were both given to you. Let's go to Proverbs 15. Proverbs 15 in verse 23 says this. A man finds joy in giving an apt reply. And how good is a timely word. Somebody say timely. timely. The path of life leads upward for the wise to keep him from going down to the grave. Now, if I read to you Acts 5.4, that whole story with Ananias and Sapphira. How many of you know Ananias and Sapphira? Okay, those of you that don't know, Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit and God struck them dead. Ananias was the first body to hit the ground. The first youth ministry in all of the Bible, Pastor Dennis Pence from 3C Life tells us, are the young men carrying out the bodies of the old men. Because after Ananias hit the ground, Peter asked Sapphira, is this the price that you got? She said, yep. And then her body hit the ground. You said, man, that's a tightrope kind of scripture, don't you think? I mean, one small little lie and two people are dead. You should be afraid, very afraid. In fact, constantly be moving, constantly moving based on fear, always looking for the chance to fall. Except if you keep reading in the passage, the money was theirs to do whatever they wanted with in the very first place. Anything they did would be okay as long as they told the truth about it. Is it a tightrope scripture? When we're looking at tightrope versus parking lot, some of you may not remember Hezekiah's Passover. Make a note, Second Chronicles 30, and you can just write down verses 17 through 19. I'm not going to go to them. I want to tell you about it. Say, hey, there's a prescribed way. We read about it. Has to be done on this date, at this time, in this way. The problem is, is in 2 Chronicles 30, they did it at the wrong time. They did it in the wrong way. Say, so, well, that's a parking lot scripture, isn't it? I mean, because I'm God's and I'm in the center of the parking lot, nothing can harm me. It doesn't matter. I do what I want to. Except Hezekiah had to pray for the whole nation and God healed them. What would happen if he didn't pray? See, a timely word means that at different times in your life, like perhaps when you're treating the grace of God with, with contempt, 
Maybe you need to read a word that says there's a prescribed way and you're not on it. At another time in your life, when you're struggling to follow the Lord with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, and you're disappointed in your own weakness, but ever relying on the king, maybe you need to be told that nobody can snatch you out of his hand. Perhaps our loving father has an apt word for every person at the right time. We love to say, well, it's all this or it's all that, or place it in an either-or scenario. In fact, most of my preaching could be considered tightrope preaching. I think it's part of my role in the body. But there are other ministers in this room that have demonstrated patience over a long period of time and seen similar fruit. Maybe it's a big body. Have you ever noticed that Jesus Christ did not give the same words to the same people. He told Nicodemus in John 3, you must be born again. Could it get any clearer than that? Tight rope, born again. You're either are or not. Born of the spirit or born of the flesh. One or the other. He didn't talk to him at all about the baptism in the Holy Ghost. In John 4, he speaks to a woman and says... If you knew who I was, you would ask me and I'd give you living water. And he never talks to her about being born again. Do you think maybe that the king of kings knows what you need to hear and that both are true? You may need to be born again and baptized in the Holy Ghost. I want to tell you that the walk with our king is not a tightrope and it's not a parking lot. Those are extreme positions that view the scripture in too narrow of a light. The truth is, is that the overwhelming number of scriptures that are in the Bible present the, the road of salvation as a highway of holiness. Interstate 35, Isaiah 35, mile marker 8, and a highway will be there. Not a tightrope. Not a parking lot. See, a parking lot is an event. Once you're there, you don't move. And a tightrope, you could never be still and know that there's a God. On a tightrope, you could never be at peace. On a tightrope, you couldn't do anything except keep moving, waiting that you might fall on your very next step. But on a highway, there might be a season for all kinds of things. I don't know about you, but I've often been pretty disappointed to be going 75 or however fast it might be and find a new season on the highway where they've, I don't know, gone from 75 to 65 to 55 to 45 mile an hour construction zone. You can even be ticketed on the highway. Did you know? I have never personally experienced it. But you can get a ticket for going too slow. <laughs> Did you know that? There is a minimum speed on the highway. But highway speeds vary based on what's going on. They vary based on the incline. They vary based on the curvature. They vary based on what's on the sides. Your walk with Jesus is described as a walk and it's also described as a run. Sometimes we have made this so simplistic that we have erred. 
One group in Christianity acts as if you could lose salvation and fall at any moment. Another group in Christianity acts like the moment that you prayed a prayer, anything that ever needed to be done has already been done, and for that reason you can live like hell all the way to heaven. The fruit of both doctrines is terrible, even if the technical precision of their language is beautiful. The question is, how does God himself present his walk of salvation in the Bible? In Isaiah 35, and a highway will be there. It will be called the way of the unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in. Oh, that way. Which way? That way. Somebody point to that way. (laughs) Not this way. Not those ways. That way, as if there was one specific way. Somebody call the Pope and tell him there is a that way. Not many ways, a singular way. By the way, I recently saw a picture of a peace dove in the mouth of a raven. That is hilarious. They let them go in the Vatican to proclaim a year of peace. And I kid you not, Ravens descended and devoured the dove. They say a picture is worth a thousand words. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way. Which way? That way. I am the way. In Galatians 5, 25, We are told to stay in step with the Spirit. Say in step. Understand that the Lord Jesus is the narrow entrance to the highway of holiness. There is no way to get holy except through Him. He is narrow. There are not many ways. There are only a few who find Him. But once you've entered the way of holiness, He puts His Spirit in you. And as long as you stay in step with the Spirit, you have a GPS on the highway of holiness. It will warn you of the speed that you should be traveling. I should say He will warn you. He will warn you of what is ahead. He will warn you of how your course correction may need to take place. Recalculating. The Holy Spirit of God is to help you on the highway of holiness. That doesn't sound like a tightrope act. But neither is it a parking lot. It requires you to move in faith. In Ephesians 1.14, let's digress from this and go to that real quickly. Ephesians 1.14. A very familiar scripture. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, says, Who is a deposit? guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. Think on this for a second. On the highway of holiness, entered through the body of Jesus, who is the way, He is the gate, He is the shepherd. But the Holy Spirit guarantees your inheritance. How does He guarantee your inheritance? Because if you listen to Him, He will make sure that you do not veer off of the narrow way. He is that voice saying, here is the way, walk in it. He is the power to do that walk. 
until the redemption of those who are God's possession. Well, wait, I thought we were redeemed. It turns out that when you get on the road of salvation, you're called redeemed. While you're on the road of salvation, you're being redeemed. And when you reach the destination at the end of the road of salvation, you have been redeemed. That doesn't sound like a parking lot, does it? See, parking lot salvation produces this attitude that says, I did everything that ever needed to be done when I was eight and I was baptized. And the problem with parking lot salvation is it produces about the same kind of fruit a parking lot does. A lot of trash stuck to the ground everywhere, but no actual fruit. Of course, you can't grow a fruit tree on a tightrope either. Neither are true, and yet they're both true. <laughs> it's an interesting concept. They're not true when they're taken to an extreme, and they are true in presented in their totality. There is a prescribed way. Yes. There is also grace in the prescribed way, provided that your heart is right, and your direction is right, and you're trying to stay in step with the Spirit. How about Hebrews 2? I want to read you verse 4. There are signs along the highway. How many of you have ever been on a journey and it's been a while since you've been that way or maybe you've never been that way and so as you're driving, you're looking out the window going, mm, this doesn't look all that familiar. Come on, we, we're in the rela relationship month, right? If we were one of those churches, what we'd be talking about is communication styles or something cliche-ish like that. And so we might give an example of how when in the car, Miss Jennifer began to say, you know, I don't know if we're going the right way. And I said, oh, of course we're going the right way. And she said, maybe we should stop and ask for directions. And I said, I don't know how, you know. <laughs> Aren't you happy when you've gone a mile or two past where you felt comfortable and suddenly a sign appears that says your destination's that way? God also testified to it, speaking of salvation, testified to it by signs. Somebody say signs. signs. Wonders. And various miracles. And gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. God testified to salvation by signs, by wonders, by miracles by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Not only is there a highway of holiness, not only do you have the Holy Spirit telling you to stay in step with Him on the road, but along the way, there are these little markers that let you know that you're moving in the right direction. If you go to 1 Thessalonians, y'all following me so far? If you go to 1 Thessalonians, look at the first chapter in verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power. The gospel didn't just come with words. What did it come with? Power. power. And with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. These are signs along the road, signs that let you know you are headed the right way. 
You ever read in Corinthians 14? Tongues then are a sign not for the believer but for the unbeliever. Signs tell you whether or not you're on the right road. Let's talk about returning to the way. When we read Isaiah 35, I didn't read verse 9. And I want to read Isaiah 35, 9. It's on your screen now. No lion will be there, nor will any ferocious beast get up on it. They will not be found there. Only the redeemed will walk there. How many people in your life do you know that it's not that they've made a profession of faith? I, I can tell you how little I care for someone's profession of faith because most men are liars. It's about like pastors telling you how many people are in their church. I rarely ever meet one that says the truth. It's like talking to fishermen about how big the last fish they caught was or a car salesman about what it's really going to cost. Only the redeemed will walk there. Can I tell you the highway of holiness can feel lonely sometimes. But every redeemed person that there has ever been has walked on it. So while it's not crowded, it is populated. It feels good to be around those that take the leading of God's positioning spirit uh, seriously, doesn't it? When you can look at another and say, hey, I think I'm going the right way. I'm trying to obey those Holy Spirit urges and I see that he's showing you the same thing. We need to pick up the pace, don't we? We're encouraged in a group like that. There's none of that in a parking lot. You know what you're encouraged by in a parking lot? That other people are in the same parking lot. That's it. Some might be parking in the parking lot. Others might be just arriving. I could tell you to close your eyes. And look how many just showed up in the parking lot and the number remain unchanged, but it's okay because we're all parking lot people, right? Of course, in the tightrope scenario, you're about to fall off the edge of God at any moment. None of those things are true. The truth is we demonstrate our faith by our actions. And you only feel like you're on a tightrope if you're on the edge of the highway of holiness about to fall in the ditch. And you can only feel like you're in a parking lot if you're in the center of the lane. But it's a narrow road. It's hard to get too far into the center of the lane. In Acts 24, verse 14, still on your screen. However, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the... A follower of the... Which they call a sect. So Paul says about his fellow Jewish brothers that they refer to people like him as a sect of Judaism called the way. Now, I listed scriptures at the bottom for you. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, and then the quoted scripture seven times in the book of Acts, the Bible refers to believers as followers of the way. The reason for this is they understood that faith was a journey, sometimes walking, sometimes running, but always in that way. How would I know what that way was? First and foremost, it would be 
holy unto the Lord. It would be a highway of holiness. Any doctrine that does not produce holiness is not a particularly useful doctrine. 1 John 2.6 says that if we love Jesus, we must walk as Jesus did. Did Jesus manifest a tightrope attitude? Do you see Jesus praying, Father, please help me. I'm about to fall any second. Do you hear that? Do you hear Jesus saying, um, look, I don't know whether we're going to do this or do that. I'm kind of unsure. I'm kind of uncertain because at any minute I could become displeasing to God. Do you hear anything like that? You hear him say things like, I always do what my father says. You hear him say, the world must learn that I love the father and I do exactly what the father says. To present the Lord as a tightrope makes the Lord guilty of you falling. He's made it impossible for you. To present the Lord as a parking lot means that you can't fall and it doesn't matter how you walk anyway. Are you beginning to read between the metaphors here? Both are a mistake. And yet, like Ecclesiastes 7 says, you have to grasp at least some portion of both and live in that tension between the two. It is possible to fall and you stand secure. How much better would the Christian faith be if we had a more Hebraic perspective? I'm not going to read to you all of the scriptures in Acts that were listed on the screen, but I will post these notes for you because there are some other things we want to get to. I did this, I don't know, a couple years ago because somebody asked and then we preached on it on a Wednesday night. And I didn't turn to some, um, oh, I didn't turn to a theological work and run down a list that somebody else gave me. These are the scriptures that came to the top of mind when I was asked. When you enter the highway, Ephesians 2.8 says, it is, For it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith, and this is not, a, not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. You know why it's a gift of God? You didn't make the highway. You couldn't have found the highway. The Spirit of God had to lead you to the highway. But now that you found it, that was a gift. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. In other words, you now stand in a completely new position in life. As soon as you enter the highway. In John 3, we find out that you enter that highway of holiness by being born again. Now that you're on the road of salvation, look at Romans 6.11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let, somebody say, do not let. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do you mean to tell me that it's not cruise control on the highway? You actually have to have your hands on the steering wheel? I'm going to tell you the truth. No matter how long you've been saved, your car still pulls a little to the left. doesn't pull to the right, that wouldn't be a problem. 1 Peter 1.9 For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls, every day that you walk further with the Lord, every day that He lays out for you tasks 
that you obey because you trust Him and you love Him. Every day you mine His Word and He reveals to you secrets from the Most High that belong to you now. Every day you are further in your salvation than you were when you started and that should be an encouragement to you. How many of you are further along in your faith now than you were five years ago? Then you're not in a parking lot. I'm not going to ask you how many of you were once in a parking lot and then you had a collision with someone who was moving. Those aren't whiskey dents. Those are dents from holiness. 1 John 2, 28, And now, dear children, continue in Him. Do what? Continue in Him, so that when He appears, we may be confident and unashamed before Him at His coming. It turns out that there's a distance you're supposed to travel. It turns out that your salvation is supposed to produce something. You're supposed to be moving along the highway of holiness. You know what that means? That means you'll be further along in a year than you are now because you are moving at the pace the Holy Spirit has set for you. So what is he asking of you next? You're not in a parking lot and you're not on a tightrope. You better be in the center of his service road. Church, if we don't have these expectations correct, then we might not produce what our salvation was supposed to produce. Did you know that John 15, his will is that we would produce fruit and fruit that lasts? The goal was that others would see the momentum he had created in your life, see the direction that he had created in your life and say, I don't want to live out here with these ferocious lions. How do I get on the way of holiness? And you could present them with an entrance ramp. I think too many pastors have been selling tickets. I think they're selling tickets to a parking lot. They don't want anything of you except for you to sit and soak. Maybe throw some change in a plate every now and then. That is what they want from you. And if you do anything more than that, then they feel threatened. Of course, there's a minority out there in Christianity that present this like... A tightrope, any second you're going to fall. Can I tell you, I haven't been scared that I was going to fall since I got on the road to salvation. I pray regularly. I ask the Lord if I'm headed the right direction. When I have um, stumbled, when I got a flat tire, when my tires got out of balance, I, I know a pretty darn good mechanic. I go to him and he reworks my heart all of the time. I need to tune up more often than, well, it's none of your business how often I need that tune up. My beautiful Valentine down here never needs a tune up. No, it's not true. The truth is that she's beautiful because the Lord is regularly tuning her up. Oh, man, that we could tune our ears into what the Spirit is saying to you today. What if this were not an abstract argument? What if this were not a distant theological concept? What if you needed to know where you were in the mile markers? What if it was important to you because you didn't know how much gas was in the tank and you had to reach your destination? You're not where you need to be yet. 
That's why I get accused of being a tightrope preacher. Because the truth is, you are not at the end goal. I know that because Romans 8.23 says, Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for our adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Since none of you have glorified bodies, I know that you have not yet reached the goal. When you do reach the goal, you'll be like Christ. Until then, it's a struggle along the road of salvation. Grace that you found it. Grace that you're on it. Grace that empowers you. But your trust in him will produce. It will produce fruit. It will produce works. It will produce other travelers on the road. It'll produce all kinds of things. Of all the things salvation is, it ought never be unproductive. Can you say amen to that? I want to talk to you about positioning in the Bible. In Genesis 2.8, it says that God planted a garden in the east called Eden. In 2.14, he says it's east of Ashur. And, you know, that's one of those things that I don't know how you take the time to, to understand unless, you know, one... Day the Lord just highlights it to you. But when you've created the whole world, right, and we have dry land come out of the water, and we have vegetation on the land and all kind of beautiful things, and then God says he planted a garden in the east, doesn't it beg a question, east of what? You know, it's like making four right turns. You <laughs> end up right back where you started. I directions without any point of reference aren't really directions, are they? It turns out that he placed his name in one place on the planet. He would reveal it to mankind later, but he stamped his physical name in the earth above Israel. The mountain range literally says El Shaddai. There is literally a place in Israel called Bethel, house of God. And in Jerusalem, this is the place where his temple was built and he said his name would dwell. It turns out that the Tigris and the Euphrates are east of Jerusalem where God planted his garden. What direction was it? East. What direction was it? East. I just wanted to make sure that became clear. The Bible is largely the story of mankind on the right road but headed the wrong direction. If you think about it, when you read a story that says a man was headed from Jerusalem down to Jericho, Jericho symbolizes the world. Jerusalem is the place where God's name dwells. He's on the right road. He's just headed the wrong way. And what happens to him? He catches a severe beating. Somebody shows him mercy, and it puts him back on the right road in the right direction. Oh, I don't know what it takes to get us to turn around, but I know in the Bible, mankind is usually presented going the wrong way. If he planted a garden in the east, do you remember what side he set man on when man sinned? On the east side. Look at Genesis 4, 6. It's on your screen. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Was Cain doing well with the Lord? No, Cain had just done what? He just murdered someone. 
Genesis 11, 2. As men moved eastward, they found the plain in Shinar and settled there. And there, of course, they got the idea to build a big tower to Babel. Was that a good thing or a bad thing? Can we say that men are headed the wrong direction and they're in the wrong activities very often? And for some reason, it's always east. Genesis 13, 11. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out towards the The two men parted company. And uh, by the way, in the east was Sodom and Gomorrah. How'd that turn out for Lot and his daughters? Go with me to Genesis 3. Let's pick up in 24. I want to show you a familiar passage in an entirely new light today. Y'all all right? You following me so far? Genesis 3.24, after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, I want to tell you, I personally was never in a Sunday school class. Um, I was raised differently than I raised my children. Uh, It would be surprising to many of you to hear the things that my parents taught me to do. Um, But... I've been told because I married into a family that was Sunday schoolish that there used to be these black felt boards and that on the felt board we had little cutouts, right? And so you would end up with a couple things like uh, a a garden, uh, boom, on the felt board. And then then this flaming sword like between the garden and and now, now it's on the east side. And then man outside of it uh, headed the other way. And so you grow up with this conception then that what Genesis 3.24 is really about is a big, bad, bully God who recognized that man, standing on a tightrope, made a mistake. And so he drove him from the presence at the tip of a sword as if to say, if you ever come back here, I'm going to stick you. Now, that may not be what your Sunday school teacher said, but visually, this is what many people have gleaned from the story. And it dominates people's thoughts. Somehow or another, God is the big, angry guy waiting to squish them. Does God squish people? Yes. He makes the earth open and swallow them. I mean, he caused an angel to strike a man dead in the New Testament, he claimed to be, have the voice of a God, not of a man. And not just struck him dead, worms ate him too. That's like a bonus round. But is the Bible about God squishing people? No, of course not. Not any more than it's like salvation on a tightrope. Does that mean then that God will not burn people? Oh, I don't think we could say that either could we? So what then is Genesis 3.24 about? I want to talk to you about the concept of he placed. There's a phrase that is translated in the NIV. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden cherubim. Do you notice that there's a lack of uh, articles there? Like it doesn't say he placed on the east side of the garden a cherubim or the cherubim. That's because in Hebrew, 
This is a difficult construction. And what I mean by that is it's difficult to say what he's placing where and what is meant by it. I want to show you. He placed, this is Strong's number 7931, Shekan. It means to settle down, to dwell, to abide, to inhabit. Intertwine with, as distinct from yasab, which simply means live or reside. I know, you didn't come to church for a linguistic lesson. Let me just give you a parallel in the scripture. In Numbers 35, 34, that's on your screen, it says, Do not defile the land where you live, that's you, Yasab, and where I dwell, Shekan. For I, the Lord, dwell among the Israelites. When you Shekan, it means to dwell or be intertwined with in a permanent way. In the Bible, men, Yasab somewhere. You know why? It'd be like uh, where I'm from in South Baton Rouge in Louisiana. People would say, hey, man, where you stay? Well, the man is, where are you living at the moment? Because none of us lived in any one place very long. Every few years, we moved, so we started referring to it in a very temporary way. We didn't say, where do you live? Where do you own a home? None of us owned homes. We said, where did you stay? Do not defile the land where you stay and where I am intertwined permanently. For I, the Lord, am intertwined among the Israelites. Are you following the difference so far? When the Bible says he placed, he is saying he lives with, is intertwined with, abides, or inhabits. Not simply that he placed it there like a jar of cookies. Now, what did he place there? In Genesis 3.24, just to read it again while this is on the screen with you says, after he drove the man out, he, Shekan, he was intertwined, dwelt with, intersected with, in a permanent way, on the east side of the Garden of Eden, cherubim. You following me? Yes. Cherubim in the Bible. I, I could not read you all of these, but this slide will be uh, presented online for you. Psalm 80, Psalm 99, Isaiah 37, Ezekiel 10, Revelation 4, Ezekiel 11, Psalm 18, 2 Samuel 22. All of these listed at the bottom and on the slide itself, 1 Samuel 4, 4. So the people sent men to Shiloh and they brought back the ark of the coming of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the... Where is the Lord enthroned? He placed cherubim on the east side of the garden. But it doesn't say in Hebrew he placed. It says he's intertwined with. He dwells with. He lives permanently with. How about 2 Samuel 6, 2? He and all his men set out from Bala of Judah to bring up the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the... Suffice it to say, throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, God was enthroned in one place. He was enthroned between cherubim. What did he set on the east side of the garden? Cherubim. And where is God normally enthroned? Cherubim. And what does the Hebrew word imply? That he's intertwined with. That he is permanently dwelling with. Let's go to the next slide together. Another key word in this phrase, and I'm going to put them all together to see if I can help you, is samar. And that's because 
It says this in Hebrew. I'm sorry, I'm going to read it in English first. After he drove the man out, he shakan, he intertwined with, on the east side of the Garden of Eden, cherubim, which, by the way, is always enthroned on, and a flaming sword back and forth to guard. The word guard is samar. When I say guard, like I gave my daughter a Valentine's Day present today. Now, crafty fellow that I am, when I gave her, where is she? Abby, are you in here? Oh, come here, honey. When I gave, no, bring your monkey. When I gave my daughter, the, isn't my daughter pretty? I gave her a monkey, right? And uh, a bottle of Baptist champagne. It's uh, not fermented unless it sits long enough to ferment. And uh, a little box of chocolates, right? You know why? Because I love her. You know the other thing? I got a commitment out of her today. I said, Abby, if you accept this Valentine, it means I'll be your only Valentine for a period of 10 years, 120 months. I thought she said I didn't get a present for 10 years. Yeah, so how old are you now? I'm 10. That means until she's 20, I'm her only Valentine. 21. Now, what that would mean is I have effectively guarded Abby from the world, right? That's, that's me going, she's here and I'm here. <laughs> this is usually our view of the garden, that God took the garden like Abby and put the garden behind the cherubim and the flaming sword and said, you can't get back there, right? Like an overprotective daddy would do of a teenage girl at least I'm told they might do that. The problem with that is that the Hebrew word means to watch, to keep, to preserve, to guard, to be careful, to watch over, to watch carefully over. The word can suggest the idea of protecting, preserving, or saving. Now, that is a whole lot more than simply guarding from, as in separating things, that implies that he may be there protecting something, preserving something. I'm going to put it all together for you in this slide. Genesis 3.24 in the NIV says, After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth, to guard the way to the tree of life. From this, we've gotten the idea that God, the overprotective father, is keeping us from something good at the point of a sword. But it might be. I even might say it's likely that a more Hebrew concept would be after he drove the man out, he, God, dwelt on the east side of the garden in his cherubim throne. By the way, did you notice it's not he placed on the east side a cherub? In Hebrew, a cherub is singular, but cherubim is plural. Cherubim are what his throne is on. A cherub never occurs singularly in the Bible. On the ark of God, the mercy seat, cherubim stretch forth their wings, plural, together. And God resides above it, and the voice came from there. Um, in all of the visions of God in the heavenlies, whether it's Revelation or Ezekiel... He is on top of living creatures with the faces of cherubim. After he drove the man out, he, God, dwelt on the east side of the Garden of Eden in his cherubim throne to guard, preserve, watch carefully or keep carefully the way to the tree 
of life. Let us think about this for a minute. If salvation is not a tightrope, if salvation is not a parking lot, if it's a journey from there to there, if you actually have to find it, be led to it, walk in it, and arrive at a destination, what if when God drove man out of the garden, what he did was set himself up on the east side of the garden, on the same side that he drove man out, on the same side that man would always be going in the wrong direction, always on the right road but headed the wrong way? What if this is the picture of the father standing saying, I'm going to guard this entrance to preserve it for you because there is a highway of holiness. And one day somebody's going to stand up and say, I am the way. Somebody's going to stand up and say, I am the gate to the sheep. Someone is going to discover for the first time in many years because it had been carefully guarded by God to not be corrupted, to not be overgrown, to not be turned into a parking lot or a tightrope. The actual right way of God could be discovered again. And he wanted as a good father for his children to walk rightly with him. In Matthew 2, Turn. Notice this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east, the way wrong direction from the east, came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east. Where did the star appear? In the east. And we have come to worship him. Verse 9. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. Do you mean to tell me that man was put out on the east side of the garden? His every direction was headed the wrong way. Always going further in disobedience. But the announcement of salvation occurred in the furthest place of disobedience drawing those furthest from God all the way back to him by discovering the way that he had carefully guarded, preserved, and protected the way back to his throne, the way that he himself had preserved through all millennia. Do you know who he did not have come and worship him when he's a toddler standing by his mother? All the leaders of the religious community. He didn't. He didn't have all the wise men of the locality. You know who was the first to come to him? Those who knew they were the furthest from him. It turns out that one of the things that obscures the way is when you're standing in something you think is the way and it's not. But if you're already in briars, if you're already among wolves, if you're already among all of the yucky things of the world, then it doesn't take a lot to get you to see that you're not in the right way. For this reason, there is no wickedness like religious wickedness. This is why Jesus was killed at the height of the religious world. He was killed on a religious day by religious people in the religious capital of the whole world. And they had no idea that they were obscuring the way that God was trying to reveal. Can I tell you, we do the same thing with our doctrine. If you make salvation a tightrope, 
or you make salvation a parking lot, either one, then you're obscuring what God has worked carefully to preserve and protect. Do you know why? Because he wants people to walk in the way of holiness. He wants people to discover that way. The ministry of Jesus came to reveal the Father. 1 John 1.18 says, No one has uh, ever seen him at any time except the one who is at the Father's side has made him known. The ministry of Jesus Christ was to make the Father known. Is this a familiar story? People call it the, the, the parable of the prodigal son. It's not the parable of the prodigal. There would be no reason to tell a parable about a prodigal. How many of you would find it revelatory to find out that a son is a, a, a big foul-up? How many of you would find it revelatory to find out that somebody's son lost their way? How many of you would find it very revelatory to find out that a young man was interested in women and booze? How many of you would find it very revelatory? It'd, it'd be about like telling a parable of the teenager and, and the mouse and pornography. Like, uh, there would be no parable. Where's the mystery here? This is the parable of a misunderstood father. A father that his son spits in his face, says, I wish you were dead. I'd rather have you dead than to have to live with you. Give me all that is yours and let me go live with pigs if I choose. And the father says, sure. But the Bible doesn't leave the story there. It says in Luke 15, verse 17, when he came to his senses, the son who had sinned, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. He noticed that he's not in the way. He's noticed that he's covered in briars and thorns. So he says, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long ways off, somebody say a long ways off. His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. How did his father see him? Because on whatever side of the house the son last left on, that's where the father spent his days. Waiting for a son's return. He didn't drive him out at the point of a sword to never return again. There may have been a sword involved and there may have been a driving out, but the father's every hope was that the son would return to the very same spot he had left from. This parable should be called the parable of the misunderstood father because it's about our heavenly father. He's not got you on a tightrope waiting for you to fall so that he can laugh and crush you. He's not placed you in a parking lot that requires no effort and brings no honor to God. There is a highway of salvation. And it turns out that we've been on it but headed the wrong way for most of our lives. And wherever you departed from the right way, he stands there and calls you back to the way of holiness. He's intertwined with it. He guards it. He preserves it. He makes sure that it is still possible for you to find your way home again. How far off was the young man? Oh, as far as the east is from the west. I mean, 
he was a long way off. But his father saw him, and he was filled with compassion to him. Do you know how shocking it would be to the original audience to hear this next sentence? He ran to his son. It ought to be just as shocking to you when you hear the phrase, when you draw near to him, he will draw near to. Do you mean that the God of heaven doesn't have me at sword point driving me away? He's looking to see if I will take a step towards him. And if I head towards him, then he runs to me. Oh, our father is misunderstood. He's not a tightrope and he's not a parking lot. He has real feelings. He can be filled with pain in his heart. He has real feelings. He can be filled with joy. He's a real father. 2,600 times the word father appears in the Bible. But only a handful in the Older Testament refer to God as Father. And when they do, they're usually the Spirit of Christ prophesying about a future event. But it's almost the only way that Jesus ever refers to God. He is a Father who is waiting on the side of the house that you last ran from, looking for you to return. Can you imagine if this son... While the father is running to him, but before he gets there, decides to sit down, say, well, I went far enough. This is good. I showed the father that I desired in my heart at eight years old to one day return to him. So I'm going to camp right here. Father can run the rest of the distance to me. That's what happens when we make Christianity a parking lot and salvation a singular event. Can you imagine if... While he should be looking at his father and running towards his father, moving that direction, all he can keep doing is looking to the side, going, I might get off, I might fall in some direction. How about you just fix your eyes on the author and perfecter of your faith and run after him? Oh, church, I don't know how many ways there are to stir you to passion, but what I can tell you is that when I met him, fear left me. But I was so filled with a motivation so filled with a desire to do His will that I haven't stopped running in 23 years. If what you feel is His disapproval, you need to repent. Either repent of your bad thinking or repent of your evil deeds. I bet the moment that this son saw his father run to him, he felt nothing but acceptance even though he knew he was wrong. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Do you feel kissed by the father or beaten by the father? You can't find anybody who had been more insulting to their father than this young man, but the father had a kiss waiting for him, not a beating. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Let me ask you, is that a true statement or not? It is a true statement, but the one person on the planet that has the right to call him son 
is his own father. The son may not have the right to ask it, but the father certainly has the right to declare it. This is the meaning of John 1.12. As many as who believed in him, he gave the right to become sons of God. This young man had ceased to become a son. At least in his own eyes, but in the father's eyes. When he saw him returning, he literally says, I've received him back from the dead later in the passage. But the father said to his servants, quick, not, not over a 30-year lifetime, quick, bring the best robe, not a marginally acceptable robe, the best, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Give him a new walk. Give him new authority. Give him new power. Quick! God's not withholding anything from you. You might be sitting in a parking lot refusing to pursue Him. Or you might view yourself on a tightrope ever displeasing to Him in any way that you lean. But the truth is He's been guarding over the way. He's been marking the way. He's been standing in the way and calling you to it. And with every step that you take, He will clothe you with Christ. He will shod your feet with the gospel of Christ. And He will give you the authority to use the name of His Son. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. I bet that the Son would have been willing to die in the calf's place. But the Father would never have it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. I don't know what your view was prior to walking in this room, but I know this. Our father is misunderstood. His nature is misunderstood. Salvation is misunderstood. And in most places that you go, you're going to hear salvation as a one-time event. Or you're going to hear salvation is something that you can never really know. Anthony Scalia died yesterday. And they interrupted a news bulletin to let us know he got his last rites. You know how much I care about his last rites? This is religious superstition. Because a priest gave him a cracker on his deathbed. You know what that means? It means he died with a cracker in his mouth. On a tightrope. If the church isn't there to give you a Eucharist, you're going to fall. I don't know what's more ridiculous, the tightrope or the parking lot. Now that you prayed this prayer, park right here. Become as stiff and as concrete as the ground you're standing on. The truth is, is the Father's running towards you and you better be running towards Him. Amen. Fix your eyes on Him. Amen. You know how you run? You put one foot in front of the other. It begins with what could be called a walk, then a jog, then a sprint, and before long you've lost yourself in pursuit. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet.